The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. Today's episode is in the 250s, and I don't know exactly which one, but I will tell you that we are closing in on the end of 2021. We are into December. And once again, I'm going to give you my pitch that if you or someone that you know and love has a substance abuse problem, please, please, please don't wait until after the holidays to get into treatment or to get your loved one into treatment. Do it now. Drug addiction is not going to take a holiday and it's not going to be pretty if you or someone that you love is addicted. You need to get them into treatment or you need to get yourself into treatment. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and for sure check out our channel on YouTube if you like watching videos and give us a thumbs up and subscribe there as well. Today we have an interview with a lady named Candace Platter. She is an addictions therapist in private practice. She has her own substance abuse history. She was a former opioid addict but she's 34 years clean and sober now. That's quite an accomplishment. And if Candace can do it, so can you. For more than three decades, she's been helping both addicts and their loved ones understand their dysfunctional behaviors and make healthier life choices. The results that Candace achieves have been astounding. So let's not waste any more time. Let's talk to Candace Plator. So Candace Platter, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing your story. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Joni. Awesome. So take us back and tell us your story. Where did you grow up? Um, your bio said that you had an addiction situation of your own. Tell us how that mm -hmm. came about. Okay. Well, I, I think you asked me where I grew up. I grew up all over the place because our family moved around a lot. Um, and I think I need to say something about my voice. Sometimes I can get a little hoarse, and I think that has to do with my addiction as well, smoking a little too much weed, maybe. Um, but uh, I'll do my best to uh, to not be too hoarse. Sounds fine. Um, okay. So I was actually born in Brooklyn, New York, and I lived there till I was about five. And then our family moved and we just kept moving. I graduated in New Orleans, graduated high school in New Orleans. So we just were all over the place. And, um, you know, I, I, as a child, um, and even a bit later than that, I was very healthy. I never had any problems with my health. I was, uh, I had all the usual childhood things that everybody else has, but I, I was fine. And then um, when I was in my early 20s, I was about to uh, get married. And um, I was living in Canada at the time. I'm, I live in Vancouver now. And I was in Calgary at the time. And my fiance um, was an American citizen. And he was his visa had had run out. So we were going to the States. I was a dual citizen. So and so we packed everything that we had into a Volkswagen van. Remember those Volkswagen vans? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we started driving across the continent. And everything was fine until one day, um, 
we went for lunch at uh, you know a roadside restaurant, and I started getting very sick, very very sick, and I thought that I had food poisoning. Those were the symptoms, but those symptoms never went away. And by the time we got to Maryland, if you can think about going from from one end of the continent to another in a Volkswagen bus with food poisoning symptoms. Oh my goodness. Not such a fun time. So by the time we got there, I was so sick and it was in the early seventies and nobody really knew what was wrong with me. They told me it was all in my head. You know, the doctors didn't know what to do. And finally, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. I was actually misdiagnosed with colitis for a year and given the wrong medication, which didn't help at all. But then I was diagnosed with Crohn's. And I now had Crohn's for close to 50 years. And Crohn's is one of those really debilitating, painful, difficult to manage illnesses that doesn't they say it has no known cause. I kind of disagree with that, but they say it has no known cause and it has no known cure. So I still have it to this day, but it's so much better because I've learned over the years how to take care of myself and have chosen to do that. But in the beginning, oh, I was sick every day. I needed surgery after surgery. The doctors didn't know what to do with this young woman who was in tears all the time and depressed and in pain. And so what they did is they gave me a lot of addictive medication. That's like, so they that, gave, there's the, the solution that doesn't work ever. Ever, and it's unfortunately, some doctors are still doing that. And mm-hmm. that's uh, a little shall we say, infuriating to me. But, um, but at that point, that's really all they knew to do in their defense. They just didn't know what to do. So they gave me benzodiazepines, which is Valium, Ativan, those kinds of drugs. They gave me lots and lots of opioids. They gave me codeine and Demerol and Oxycontin and morphine and anybody's body would become addicted to those substances. It's just how they, those drugs are. And addiction was not on the radar at that time. Certainly not the way it is today. Certainly not. Um, I had no idea that I was going to get into any kind of trouble taking those medications. So I just, you know, I'm a good girl. I took, I did what the doctors told me to do. I took the medicine, you know, and, uh, if you fast forward about 15 years to the mid to upper 80s, um, I guess I'll back up and just say that those, those substances are depressants in the human system. And I was taking so many of them day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, all the time I was on these depressants. And I was also smoking pot, so um, which helped a lot in terms of the symptoms. And I liked the feeling of being high. I'll admit it, you know. So that's a depressant as well. Anytime I drank, that was a depressant as well. So about 15 years later is when I reached my point of no return. I, I just want to um, make an editorial comment here. I have to be sure. with Candace. Like, 
For being in the amount of pain and distress that you were in with the Crohn's disease, when yeah. you say, I liked being high, I don't yeah. find fault with that. Mm -mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I remember very clearly having been sick for an extended period of time and telling my husband we were going to a wedding and I intended to get roaring drunk because I'd been sick for so long. And here yeah. you are, you're a young person with that type of disease. I, I just had to make an editorial comment there that, yeah, Thank you, I probably Jordan. would have gotten Thank high you. too. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And, you know, I have forgiven myself for many things over the years, but that's one of them. But yeah, I mean, I was an addict in the making because I enjoyed the feeling. And yeah, I, my life blew apart with this illness. It just did. Um, <clears throat> so, so in 1987, I was, I'd been taking everything for about 15 years and I was so depressed. I was so, uh, I, I mean, I don't even have a word for it aside from depressed. Um, I thought about suicide and I thought seriously about suicide and I scared myself around that. I, ha I knew I had enough pills to do it. I knew I could time it so that nobody would find me in time. I mean, I was developing a plan. I had the method, the means. And one day I just, I just thought I'm going to do this. I, I didn't know what else to do. I just didn't want to live this way anymore. You know, I didn't really want to die, but I didn't want to live the way I was living. And instead of taking the pills, what I decided to do was make a phone call. And I called the Vancouver Crisis Center. And somebody there saved my life. I don't even know who that person was. I don't remember whether it was a man or a woman, but somebody, <clears throat> somebody listened to me. Somebody took me seriously. And that person made a suggestion for me to go to a suicide counseling center the next day, which I did. I'm not even sure how I got myself there, but I did. And they suggested that I sign myself into a, a psych ward in a, re, in a local hospital. And so that's what I did, because I was actually afraid that <clears throat> if I wasn't in a place where um, somebody would take my clothes and I couldn't go out and do stuff, I was afraid that I might kill myself. So I spent about a month in a psych ward and what an experience that was. And I started to um, get the counseling I needed. And I met a couple of people there who were also trying to come off drugs and alcohol. I didn't even realize at that point that that's what I needed to do. Can I just mute myself and clear my throat? Is that okay? Yep. And feel free to drink water whenever you need to drink water. It's Thank fine. you. I've got it right here. Yeah. Um, so I met these two people and they were going to Narcotics Anonymous meetings every day at noon across the street at the nurse's residence. So I started going with them. And that was really the beginning of my recovery from addiction. Because the people there, I mean, I would sit there and I would just sob through the whole meeting. You know? <laughs> and... And, and the people there would say, keep coming back, 
Were you detoxing, you. Candace? Did they did you did you stop the drugs? Were you tapering them no, off? Um, I wasn't at a I wasn't at a point of detox yet. Okay. So okay. in the hospital, they were still giving me Valium, and you know you don't just cut Valium off. So right. they, I was still taking the drugs. Um, detox came later, and so did residential treatment rehab came later. But you know it was really an amazing time for me. And when I, because I was accepted, I was accepted for everything that I was feeling. I could sit there and wail and sob and I was still accepted, which is not, had not been my childhood experience, you know? Um, so, so I just going, I kept going back and I kept, I, when I started to understand that I was an addict, that word addict, you know, some people don't like it and they think that it's a label and, you know, that it's derogatory. Uh, for me, it was the best thing that ever happened because once I knew what the problem was, then I could start to fix the problem. And that's what I did. So I went into detox. I went to rehab for a month and I made a decision that I was not going to use anymore. I was not going to drink anymore. I mean, within the, within the limitations of having Crohn's, but I wasn't going to be doing the same kind of Valium or Oxys. I wasn't going to be doing that anymore. And I was going to figure out another way to live my life. And when I was in my eighth month of recovery, I had eight months clean and sober. I had to have more surgery for my Crohn's in order for me to even recover a little bit. I, there were, there were pieces that needed to be taken out. And so it was major slice and dice kind of surgery. Yeah. And, um, I was really, really looking forward to getting my one year cake in narcotics anonymous. I wanted my one year cake. I'd worked hard for it and I wanted it. And and there I was in the hospital and I had had surgery before many times and I knew how painful it could be. So I let them know I was an addict and it, I thought it was in my chart. You know, I woke up on a morphine drip that I had control over with just a push of a button. Okay. And yeah. So that was another point of no return for me. So I, I kind of looked at the situation. I loved the feeling of the morphine. I wasn't feeling the physical pain that I knew was there. I knew I'd feel it. And I thought to myself, okay, what I'm going to do is use this for about two days. And then I'm going to stop and I'm going to do something else. I told the nurses, take this away. In two days, I told them, take it away. Don't bring it back. I want extra strength Tylenol, and I want a whole bunch of ice packs over and over and over and over. So I took extra strength Tylenol. I put ice packs on this incision. It wasn't like laser surgery like they do now. It was big stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just had ice packs on me the whole time. And I got better. It healed. I knew it would heal. I knew it would be painful. I laid in bed sometimes just screaming and the nurses wanted to medicate me and I'm saying, no, no, no. 
and I took my one-year cake. And today, I'm 34 years clean and sober, and I've never relapsed. And I've found other ways to deal with Crohn's, and I've found other ways to deal with life, which is the real, the real thing that we have to do. Um, and now I work with, with, I work in the addiction field. You yeah. know, I just have to say, 34 <laughs> years clean and sober, yeah. when you're also dealing with Crohn's disease, I mean, yes. that is phenomenal. And I'm just going to say very well done you, because yeah. a lot of people have trouble getting clean and sober when they don't have physical disabilities like Crohn's disease. And the yeah. fact that you did it and you've stayed clean and sober for 34 years, I mean, that's phenomenal. And your determination with getting rid of the morphine drip, that's an amazing story. Do you know? Yeah. I, I, I just have to, I have to validate you for that because that's, I, yeah. Well done you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and uh, I'm thinking I couldn't have made up a story like that. You know, it's, it's interesting when people tell me, I think when, when we're told that our stories are inspirational to other people, when we've been through a lot and we, you know, for me, I just kind of think, well, that was my life. That's what happened. Yeah. But for other people, it was like what you're saying. Wow. You know, and I and I never, ever thought that I'd be 34 years clean and sober. Never occurred to me that that would happen. It's just one day at a time like it is for everybody. And I never really ever thought that I could ever do anything helpful to the world. You wow. know, that would be uh, I mean, <clears throat> when you're in addiction, you don't think about being helpful to the world. Right, right. And you think about, oh my God, I'm suffering so much. And how can I get my next pill? <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, my next whatever to be able to feel better, yeah. yeah. But feeling better this way, the way I feel now about myself, the self-respect and the self-trust that I have now after doing my inner work for as long as I have, it's so much better than being high. It's well, just so much better. <laughs> and, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. And we've talked about this over and over again on the podcast. Drugs are the solution. They're not really the problem. And you have to come to terms with what is the problem? What was there yeah. before? What are the issues that underlie the addiction? And I think, I yeah. think so often people don't understand that. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. 
or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So Candace, tell us what you're doing now, because I know that you're helping people and I know you are providing a service that is very needed and wanted. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was about three years clean, I started wanting to work in the addiction field. I'd been teaching before that. And um, I really wanted to be able to give back some of the help that I had been given. And so I, I went looking for a job and I found a job in what's called, it's Vancouver's downtown east side. And that area of Vancouver is the lowest income area of Canada. And it's where most of the addicts and alcoholics live who are in active addiction. People with severe mental illness are, are there as well. So it's, it's that kind of community. And I got a job there. It was kind of a big culture shock to me, um, but I loved it. I just loved it. I loved working with the people, with the clients. So I was working with the addicts and the alcoholics there. And um, I started getting phone calls from their families. I don't know how that happened. I didn't go seeking this. It came to me. Um, and and they were they were calling me and they were saying we are at the end of our rope we just don't know what to do with them anymore we love them but we can't stand them you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to tell them either because I had never worked with the families of addicts and so I said okay come in come in and talk to me and as I listened to the stories I could see that there were a lot of similarities I mean every family is different of course but there were a lot of similarities and one of one of the similarities that I kept seeing over and over again was what we now call enabling. And so people were giving money to their addicts, even though they knew where the money was gonna go. They were doing all kinds of things that weren't helping. They were enabling, not helping. And and, And as I looked around at the addiction field, I saw that there was very little help for the families who are struggling and suffering right alongside the addict. There's a lot of help for the addicts out there, there's treatment centers and rehabs and detoxes and all kinds of stuff, but hardly anything. And many of these treatment centers don't have family programs or they're, you know, they might give them a little education, but they don't really give them any counseling that's ongoing. They teach them a little bit about addiction, then they go home and they have to figure it all out themselves. So I decided that I was going to um, that that's what my professional uh, direction was going to be. That's what I was going to focus on was helping the families. Uh, so in 2010, I have it right here, in 2010, I wrote my first book, which is called Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself, the Top 10 Survival Tips for Loving Someone with an Addiction. Wow. Is that on huge... Amazon, Candace? It's on Amazon. Okay. Yep. All of, I have three books now and they're all on Amazon. And Two of them, this one and the workbook that goes with it, won uh, USA and International Book Awards, which for an addict, you know, like I never thought anything like that would ever happen. And so this book has gone on to help a lot of people. I've worked in this field now for about 30 years, working with families. And um, 
<clears throat> it's just amazing when people learn how to respect themselves and set some boundaries that um, the addicts actually like. They won't ever admit that, but they actually like it. I think they feel more loved and cared about with boundaries than without them. I think that's true. And I, re I seem yeah. to recall a guest that we had that talked about when his mother finally put her foot down and, and it was a major turning point for the addict because, yeah, because if, if nothing else, it would seem to me like the addict feels very guilty whenever they take advantage of a family member. So the more that they can do that, the more the guilt comes in. And yep. anyway, I, I'm kind of, I'm not speaking from where I know, I'm just speaking my own opinion, but yeah. Yeah, no, but you're, you're right. I mean, they do feel guilty when they're not high when they're high, they just want what they want. Right. And, you know, so, um, yeah, it's, so when, when a family can come from a place of love, when a family can say, we love you so much. And because we love you, we are no longer going to support you in active addiction. We're not going to do that with you anymore because we don't want you to be in active addiction. We certainly don't want to support you there because that's how much we love you. So, we will support your recovery. When you're ready to do that, you let us know. That turns the addict around. Most addicts want to be included in their families. They want that connection. And, and addicts need their families. They need them, but they need them to be healthy with them. And you know, I just have to say, this podcast I think will go up um, early December. And I have said oh, this right in time for the holidays. Exactly. Yes. And I have said this over and over again, really for the last month that I've been recording that so often we hear that a family doesn't want their addicted family member to go into treatment. They want them to stay, you know, just be around for the holidays and addiction doesn't take a holiday. And that, no. that plays right <clears throat> into what you're saying. It does. It really does. And so, you know, for families, if you're going to have your addicted loved one there and your addict is still in active addiction, the boundary you might want to set could be something like, um, we'd love you to be at our gathering. We want you to be part of the family, but there are some expectations that we expect you to, to follow. And one of them is that you're clean and sober while you're here. You do not drink. You do, and maybe the family decides not to have alcohol at the dinner, who knows, but you're not to bring any drugs or paraphernalia in. You are not to use or drink in our home. Um, and if you do, we will be calling a cab for you and taking your car keys and because we love you that much and off you'll go and you, we will not tolerate you doing that. If you can stay, if you can tell us that you can do that, then we would love to have you there. And, and if you can't, um, we understand, but don't come. Yeah. Don't come or expect to be shown the door when, yeah. you know, you decide to make a different choice. Because it's like you said, you know, addiction is, is a symptom. It's a symptom of what's going on underneath. But I don't see addiction as a disease. I know a lot of people do. I have a medical disease and I know the difference. Yeah. So I can't just say, I'm not gonna have Crohn's anymore. I wish I could, yeah. but I can say that I'm not gonna have addiction anymore because underneath all of it, addiction, being in active addiction 
is a choice that people are making. We don't choose to become addicted, but once we are, when we're in active addiction and our lives are unmanageable and it's, you know, we're a mess, it's a choice. Am I going to, should I stay or should I go, you know? And that's the, that's the bottom line. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. We, we, my husband and I don't judge anybody that gets on the podcast and says, I have a disease, addiction's a disease. We don't judge it. I don't disagree with them, but I don't agree. And I'm telling you that because we're, you and I are on the same page on that. It is, you are absolutely correct. It is a choice and you know it better than anybody because you have Crohn's disease and you know what it's like to have a disease that you really can't do anything about. You didn't choose to have Crohn's disease. Well, I can do something about it. I can eat right and I can take care of myself and I can manage my stress and I can do that stuff. But yeah, I can't get rid of it. And I do know about choice because when I woke up on that morphine drip, what I knew to be true was that people would have said, oh, well, we understand why you had a relapse. You were in the hospital, you had surgery. Anybody would have, you know, and and I maybe could have even taken my one-year cake. I could probably have tried to be manipulative about that, but I made a choice because I wanted to stay clean and sober. And yep. that's what it takes. And and that's huge. And I I think, yeah, I mean, I, that's the key. It is a choice. And I think, I think what's difficult so often, and maybe you run into this with the families that you deal with, is sometimes I think, though, they say, well, if it's just a choice, why doesn't he just stop? But, right. of course, it's not well, that easy. Once you're in not, addiction, it's not see, that easy. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. Correct. And there are a whole lot of things that need to be looked at. There's counseling for the addict. There's counseling for the family. Because the deal is that everybody in a family or even sometimes even a friend group, you know, it doesn't have to be a family of blood connection, but, but everybody in a family um, that has addiction in it is affected by that person's addiction. Mm-hmm. Everybody's affected and everybody needs to heal. And if the family members don't do their own inner work about what kind of enabling are they doing? Why are they so afraid of saying no? What's that about? You know, and they change. This is, this is the key. If families want their addicts to change, uh, this is a hard one for a lot of families. They're going to need to change first because the addict isn't going to go to them and say, please set some healthy boundaries for me, you know, and they're not going to say thank you for setting healthy boundaries. They'll punch a hole in the wall instead. Yep. Yep. Right. So, so the family needs to understand what they're doing and how to stop that. And that's what I do with families. And once that's been, once that's being done, the addict takes notice and starts to say, "Uh Oh, maybe I better start changing some stuff. Yep. And then recovery in a family is so possible. Yep. It's Candace, so healable. I think what you're doing with families is amazing. And I, I know that you are changing the life of families and addicts and right across the boards. And thank you personally, thank you for everything that you're doing because 
it just it's so needed. I think that there are now more organizations yeah. that deal with the family, but you know, we, we probably need about a million of you and you know, across Canada and the United <laughs> yeah. States and across the world because yeah, yeah, we need we need many more. Candace, yeah. any I, I, thank you so much for being with us today. Is there anything you'd like to share before before we end off? I mean, I, I just think your story is phenomenal. I think I think the thing that I'd really like to say is please, please don't ever give up. Don't give up. Keep trying to get this healed. It's healable. We can actually stop addiction if we stop the enabling. We can stop the addiction. And I know that sounds really simplistic, and I know there's a lot of money to be made from people being in addiction. So, you know, but if we stop the enabling, we stop the addiction. I think so that don't give up. Perfect message. Candace, and thank if I you. can say one, one, one more thing. Absolutely. Um, my, my company, Love With Boundaries, it's lovewithboundaries.com. We offer uh, a, a free 30-minute consultation on Zoom or phone. Uh, we work all over the world. And in order to have this free consultation where you can tell us a little more about what's going on for you and we can tell you how we can help you, you just have to go on the website and fill out the questionnaire. Once we get the questionnaire, we'll get back to you and we'll set up that that consultation. So that's huge. Yeah. Love with lovewithboundaries.com. Right. Perfect. Candace, thank you so thank much you. for taking the time today. Hope you have a fabulous yeah. holiday season. And thank you. I know you're going to help other families have a way better holiday season than way they better. did without you. Yeah, it might not be wonderful yet, but it's going to be better, hopefully. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Joni, thank you so much. It was lovely to meet you and Steve and have fun with your baby. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. I, I appreciate Candace's story. I think her, her messages of courage and her messages to family, families about enabling, this is very timely. I hope that if you have a loved one who is in active addiction, that you contact her organization and find out how you can make it through the holidays and set some set some boundaries, establish some rules, and have your holidays be even better, and then get your loved one into treatment. So thank you so much. Please don't wait to get your loved one into treatment. And if you can't confront getting them into treatment right now, contact Love With Boundaries. Go to lovewithboundaries.com and contact them and find out how maybe you can navigate the holidays. I keep saying you can't, but it sounds to me like there are ways that you can. So. Everybody, have a good week. We'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.